0: Welcome to Abergavenny Baptist Church. Life, faith, together. We're now going to be having our Bible reading. The Bible reading is from Revelation chapter 20 and verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and the one who sits on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and were seen no more. And I saw the dead, great and small alike, standing before the throne. Books were opened, and then another book was opened, the book of the living. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead. Death and the world of the dead also gave up the dead they held. And all were judged according to what they had done. Then death and the world of the dead were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. Whoever did not have his name written in the Book of the Living was thrown into the lake of fire. Charles Templeton, uh, who was a friend and a fellow evangelist with Billy Graham and who has now become an agnostic, uh, says in his book, Farewell to God. How could a loving Heavenly Father create an endless hell and over the centuries consigned millions of people to it because they do not, or cannot, or will not accept certain religious beliefs. And today there's still many people who object to the idea that a loving God would send people to hell. I mean, how can uh, people experience an eternal torment and torture uh, simply because they don't believe in Jesus? It, it just seems like a, a cosmic overkill. And everyone gets the same punishment, the same fate, irrespective of what you've done. So it doesn't matter if you're, a, you're a Hitler or Gandhi, if you don't believe in Jesus... You're in the torture chamber. And so the idea of hell seems to be morally absurd. And so today we continue in our series, Questions of Faith. And today's question is, how can a loving God send people to hell? And of course, this is a tough question. It's an emotionally charged question. But these questions reveal a massive misconception about the nature of God. You see, these questions kind of assume that God is some kind of spoilt and spiteful child who has just made up these arbitrary rules, these unfair arbitrary rules, and then stamps his foot and says... My rules are my rules, and if I don't get my way, I'm going to make you pay. You're going to suffer for eternity. And of course, God isn't anything like that at all. You see, God doesn't send people to hell. God wants to have a loving relationship with everyone. God has invited everyone, into a loving relationship. And so it's not that God is sending anyone to hell, but it's rather it's us. If we are the ones who choose to turn our backs on God, to live separate from God, to be apart from God. An ultimate separation from God is hell. But this also reveals a massive misconception about the nature of hell. Now, I personally don't like to use the word hell at all. I try to avoid it at all costs because I find the word hell to be extremely misleading. It conjures up this idea of an underground torture chamber that has more to do with Hollywood movies than it does with the Bible. It has more to do with the... Medieval imagery than it does with the Bible. And, and so, and, and, and you know, the church, church uh, tradition has a, lot, has a lot to blame in this. Uh, during the Middle Ages, this is where these ideas, uh, the church came up with these ideas of hell being a kind of underground torture chamber. And, and this has now become the very popular view. This has become the popular view, and Hollywood absolutely loves it but it's very misleading. It's not what the Bible actually teaches and it becomes very misleading. And so I try not to use the word hell. I I prefer to talk about God's final judgment. The NIV translation uses the word hell only 11 times. Sorry, 12 times. (laughs) Only 12 times. And it uses the word to translate the Greek word Gehenna which I also find to be slightly misleading because Gehenna was an actual physical place just outside of Jerusalem. It was a smoldering garbage dump. There was a a, a continual fire that burnt there and, and people would throw their rubbish there and it would consume and burn up all the rubbish. And so it became a perfect symbol and an image for God's final judgment and for God's destruction of all evil. And, and this image of fire being uh, an image for God's final judgment is also found in the Old Testament in many places. For an example is Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 24, which says, And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me, The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And again over here, both the worm and the fire is is used as a symbol, as a metaphor for God's final judgment and destruction of all evil. And there are many other imagery that is used in the Bible for God's final judgment. We have darkness. Weeping, being outside the presence of God. We have a watery abyss. We have profound silence. We have burning sulfur in the presence of God. How do we interpret and understand all of this imagery? Well, there are three main views that are held by Bible-believing evangelical scholars. The first one is, is the literal view. There are a few scholars who hold to a literal view that the ungodly, the wicked, will literally be burnt for eternity. They believe it will be eternal, conscious suffering, in, in, that the fire and all those symbols are, are literal. Now, I find this view to be extremely problematic because all the imagery is contradictory. So you have fire, yet utter darkness. You have weeping, but utter silence. You have a watery abyss, but fire. you in the presence of God, yet you separated from the presence of God. And so... All the imagery is contradictory, so it's impossible to take all the imagery literally. And of course, no scholar actually does, because it's impossible. You you just can't. And so this leads to the second view, the figurative view. Uh, The figurative view is, is, is the idea that all the imagery is a symbol of destruction, And death. So the worm is a symbol of decay. The fire is a symbol of destruction, being consumed. Darkness, silence, and the watery abyss is a symbol of uncreation, the reversal of creation. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, before God begins to create, there is nothing but darkness silence, and a watery abyss. This was a symbol for nothingness. People who hold to the figurative view also point out that whenever the Bible talks plainly about God's final judgment, in other words, when the Bible talks about God's final judgment without using metaphors and imagery, it normally speaks about death and destruction. You see, the opposite of eternal life is eternal death. And and so Paul, for example, Paul in the Bible never uses the imagery of fire and so on when he talks about God's final judgment. He, He never does. For Paul, the opposite of eternal life is eternal death. And so he says, for example, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Again, in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 8, he says, whoever sows to please their flesh, from their flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And so for Paul, the opposite of eternal life is eternal death. And, 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 it's just, and so he, he writes in Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, he says, They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. And we see this again in the letters of Peter and James and John. When they are talking in plain language about God's final judgment, they talk about death and destruction. Even in the book of Revelation, in chapter 20 and verse 14, it says that the lake of fire is the second death. That the lake of fire, the imagery, the symbol of the lake of fire and the burning sulfur, is a symbol of death. And so this view makes far more sense of all the imagery, and it also makes far more sense with fitting in with the rest of the New Testament's teaching. And so this view believes that the ungodly, when they die, they will be judged and then they will experience eternal death. They will simply cease to exist. And that is their everlasting punishment. However, this view doesn't really take into consideration the imagery of weeping and anguish. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 12, it says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 10, it says they will be tormented. Now, of course, this is still symbolic language. We're not meant to take it literally, but the the symbolism seems to, well, doesn't seem to be pointing to death and destruction, but rather it seems to be pointing to some kind of suffering or pain. And so this leads to the third view, which is often known as the final end view. In this view, uh, the scholars believe that the ungodly will experience a temporary time of suffering before they merely cease to exist. So in other words, when the ungodly die, they will face judgment and then there will be a period of time where they will suffer before they will simply merely cease to exist. To exist. And they point to many scriptures, one being Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, which says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. That's Gehenna, the, the fiery rubbish dump. And so what they believe is that the person will eventually be consumed by the fire, and they will eventually be destroyed. As John Stott, the well-respected evangelical biblical scholar, says, the fire itself is termed eternal and unquenchable, but it would be very odd if what is thrown into it proves indestructible. Our expectation would be the opposite, It will be consumed forever, not tormented forever. Now, of course, they're not taking the symbolism literally. They don't think you're literally going to be put into a fire. They believe that the the symbolism of fire means that there will be some suffering, but it will lead to, ultimately, you being consumed and therefore no longer existing. And so they believe all the symbolism... Of the Bible, if you take all of the metaphors and all the imagery together, it points to a temporary suffering that leads to an eternal destruction. And they believe that the length and the severity will be in proportion to what they deserve. So the Bible says on many occasions, like in Romans chapter 2 and verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 13 says each person was judged according to what they had done. If you're a rapist, if you're a murderer, if you commit a genocide, if if you physically or emotionally or sexually abused children, then the severity of the suffering and the torment will be far more severe. It will be in proportion to what you have done. It will be fair. It will be just. No one is going to say, that's unfair. No one's going to say that. Everyone's going to say, that's fair. That's just. That's what they deserve. There will be justice. At the end, not only will justice be done, but it will be seen to be done. Everyone will say, that's fair, that's just, that's what they deserve. It will be in proportion to what they have done. What exactly is the nature of this torment? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly, but we do get some clues from Jewish writings at the time of Jesus. So in 4 Ezra chapter 7 and verse 87, it says they shall utterly waste away in confusion and be consumed with shame. They shall wither with fear at seeing the glory of the Most High. In all likelihood, the the turmoil will be an inner anguish of guilt and shame and remorse. Or it could be that you actually experience all the pain and the emotional suffering you have caused others. For a moment, you would actually experience the hurt and the pain you have caused others. Or it could be both. But it will be just. Some people may still object. How could a loving God allow people to suffer like this, even if it's only temporary? If that's your objection, then I've got a question for you. What are you actually asking God to do? To forgive everyone and and to give everyone a fresh start, no matter what the cost? Well, isn't that what God does on the cross? God wants to forgive everyone. God doesn't want anyone to experience eternal death. And if you put your faith in Jesus, then that's exactly what God does for you. Jesus takes that punishment upon himself. Jesus takes that, 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 that torment, that, that, that guilt and that shame that would consume us upon himself on the cross so that you can experience forgiveness and so that you can experience eternal life with him. But what if you don't want forgiveness? What if you don't want anything to do with God? Should God give you what you want? Well, I'm afraid that's exactly what God does. God will give people what they want. In the end, there are only going to be two types of people. There will be those who say to God, Your will be done. And then there will be those whom God says to them, Your will be done. If you choose to turn your back on God, if you choose to live a life apart from God, if you choose to be separate from God, then God will say, okay, if that's what you want, your will be done. If you want to live a life separate from God, if you want to experience a life apart from God, you can. But it leads to suffering and eternal death. In fact, it would actually be unloving of God if He did not judge evil. It's only people like us who have a relatively easy and comfortable life that object object to the idea of God's judgment and justice. If you've experienced a genocide, if you've been raped, if one of your loved ones has been murdered, You cry out for justice. If an unrepented child abuser dies at a ripe old age, seeming to get away scot-free, if a cruel dictator lives to a ripe old age, living a life of comfort and luxury, people cry out, Where is the justice? Why doesn't God do something to stop this? There is no justice. Oh, there is justice. God will do something about it. There will be a judgment. And there will be justice. If there was no, if God had no final end time judgment, then all of life becomes meaningless. There will be no meaning or reason to life at all. There would be no justice. It would actually be unloving of God if He did not judge evil. So in summary, this is kind of what I believe. If a non-Christian dies, and they've been a relatively decent, kind person, they will come to the realization that there is a God who loves them, who wanted a relationship with them, but they chose to have nothing to do with Him. They chose to live away from Him, separate from Him, and apart from Him. And God is giving them what they want. And that realization will fill them with anguish and fear. And all the unselfish and unkind things they've ever done will be exposed and they will be consumed with guilt and shame and remorse. And then they will simply cease to exist. Where if a person has been extremely cruel and evil when all their sins are exposed, they will, be, they will experience an extreme and a very severe guilt. They will be consumed by shame and remorse. They will experience the, the physical and the emotional pain that they've caused others. There will be justice. But those who have put their faith in Jesus will find their, their name written in the, the book of life and they will have nothing to fear. They will be forgiven. Because Jesus would have taken your punishment upon himself. All that 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 torment and that 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 consuming guilt and shame, He would have taken it upon Himself and He would have paid the price for you on the cross so that you can be forgiven and that you can expend all eternity with God. When you come to that realization, you simply cannot contemplate the cross for long without tears because of His great love, that He would do that for you. This isn't an easy topic to talk on, but I think it's an important topic. I think there's a lot of confusion and misconceptions out there. Hopefully this has brought some clarity. But I also hope this will be a conversation starter rather than the final word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we contemplate this very difficult topic, we can't but contemplate what you did for us on the cross. That you took our guilt and shame upon yourself. That you paid the price. That your love for us wasn't just a sentimental version. It wasn't merely words. But you loved us with action. You loved us so much that you died for us. So we could experience life. And forgiveness. And joy. And peace. And Father we are just so overwhelmed by that. We want to thank you for that. And Father, we thank You that there will be justice. That although in life people can seem to be getting away with all kinds of things, all kinds of evil, and evil seems rampage, We thank You that there is justice. And we can trust You. That there is meaning and reasons in life. And for all of that, we just want to say thank you. We pray that we can live in light of that, of your great love for us. We ask us all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for watching. For more information, please visit our website, AbgaveniBaptist.co.uk.